Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Anthony, welcome to the show. Cheers, Owen. Great to be here. Yeah, it's uh, it's good to chat in Melbourne. We've got the thunderstorms overhead. I wanted to start off with something that you sent me last night, which was a presentation or interview you did with the ABC recently, which is where you talked about the impacts of inflation on asset classes. And I thought this was quite a neat way to wrap up this idea or dispel the myth that cash is king. So can you maybe just walk us through what you did and what you found? Yeah, so I did an analysis of CPI, the Consumer Price Index here in Australia, over the course of the last decade. And essentially, the CPI, Consumer Price Index, it's a very important economic indicator. It's what the Reserve Bank of Australia targets. It's what they describe as price stability. Um, so they target between 2 to 3% inflation per annum. Um, and that's why they move interest rates up, and that's why they move interest rates down. Now, it's important to remember the Consumer Price Index. It's compiled by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. It's a measure of how much a basket of goods and services is inflating or or deflating over time. Now, everyone's cost of living is different. Mine's different to yours, Owen. You know, so I've I've got three young kids. So I spend a lot more on uh, Paw Patrol toys, you know, uh, Nintendos than you probably do. I'm sure you have a, a much more fun life than I do at the moment <laughs> as well. So you might be going out more or uh, in terms of services, you know, so you're spending more on restaurants. You said you're a foodie, right? Yeah, so that's you're, right. you're going out to restaurants a lot more than I am at home, putting the kids to bed and things like that. So the CPI, whilst it represents inflation, a basket of goods and services for the overall Australian economy, it doesn't represent an individual's cost of living. It's everyone's is different. Um, so a retiree has a very different cost of living to someone like me with a young family, to someone like you, Owen, for example, or a student. Not that you're a student, but uh, you, student you, of life. <laughs> you, get, you, get where, you get where I'm going with this. So uh, what I did was essentially think about the components of inflation that we spend money on, we have to spend money on. So for me, it's school fees, think about rents, think about insurance, uh, think about rates, think about utilities, think about electricity, water rates, et cetera versus the things that we spend money on on a discretionary basis, things like a new car, 
or, or a used car. Things like electronics for one. Exactly. Yeah. Computers, uh, mobile phones. And you only spend money on these items like white goods, for example, every so often. You know, you don't buy a new TV every month. Um, yeah. You might buy them every five years or so. So when I did this analysis, what I found was the price, the price of the things that we need to spend money on, those essential items, what we describe in economics as needs, they have materially outpaced the official rate of inflation over the course of the last decade. So CPI was up by around about 35%, whereas a basket of needs on a simple average um, was up by around 80 to 90%. Whereas the things that were we spend money on uh, in terms of wants, uh, generally they've been disinflationary or experienced very low inflation. Things like clothes, shoes, and computers had almost halved in value. Now, that's not to say that computers are cheaper or an iPhone is cheaper. We know that they're, they're getting more expensive, but the Australian Bureau of Statistics will do what they call hedonic adjustment. So they adjust for the quality improvements in the iPhone over the course of the last decade. So the, the processing power, the cameras on the iPhones are much better. So it's not to say that these items are cheaper, but they're better. Um, it's the same goes for, for cars as well. You know, you don't have wind-up windows anymore. You've got electric windows, things like that. So there's a lot of heavy manipulation that goes into that CPI inflation number. Now, what investors have to consider? And we're talking about the impact of inflation on, the return, on their returns. And why inflation is so important is it's a represent, representation of our standards of living. Uh, is when we deflate what we, des- what we describe as real returns, so what actual returns you receive after the eroding effects of inflation, if you have money in a cash account, the yields might be 4% today, for example. If inflation is 7%, you're actually going backwards by 3% per year. So over the course of the last decade, if you had money invested in cash over that time, $100 in 2010 is worth $97 today. So you've actually gone backwards. Yeah, backwards. The same was a, a similar scenario for fixed income. You had only appreciated by 20% over the course of the decade. But what investors need to consider is where they spend money on in terms of their own costs of living. So if, you, if the majority of your monthly pay goes towards those needs, for mm. example, as I would suggest most of our, our household balance sheets does, well, actually the returns on asset classes, such as defensive asset classes like cash or fixed income, haven't been sufficient to keep up with the rapid increase in those um, components of inflation described as needs. So what that represents is an erosion of our standards of living, um, particularly when you consider how quickly house prices have appreciated as well. Now, all in all, I mean, I've gone through a, a long explanation. On the ABC, it took two minutes. Um, <laughs> if you want to have a look at the Fire Trial website, the interview's there. I've gone into it in depth. But what the uh, overall conclusion is, is in terms of protecting your standard of living from those fast arising components, what we describe as needs, you need to invest in riskier asset classes like equities, whether it's Australian equities or global equities, because these asset classes had appreciated between two and 300% over the course of the last 10 years. So that represents a, a positive real return, which is what we want when we're investing. We have to think about the eroding effects of inflation on the performance of 
our asset classes. It's not, it's not uh, sufficient enough if cash is returning 10% per annum, but inflation is 50%, you know, you're going backwards by 40%. And there is no wealth accumulation machine like the equity market. Now, volatility is obviously the price you have to pay to experience those higher returns. If you want to be sleep very, very well at night, you know, you can have your, the best place is to have your cash under your pillow because you're not paying a fee to the bank to hold your cash. Um, obviously, you'll be worried about potentially Someone getting robbed. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully, your house doesn't burn down or anything like that. But um, in terms of, uh, it makes sense in this environment and, um, you know, you know better than me in terms of what financial advisors would advise. I'm not an advisor, but having diversification across your asset classes, but still in terms of cash is king. Well, it absolutely isn't when we're talking about um, your standard of living and generating returns above inflation. I love how you pulled that apart because a lot of people, when they go to Woolworths or Coles or whatever, they could see things, even before this inflation spike, they could see things getting more expensive. Like, oh, that's more expensive than it was a year ago. Medical costs are more expensive. But yet the government says... Inflation's only you know two to three percent, or there's no inflation, you know. Well, what the well that storm uh, they say uh, the RBA doesn't like this discussion, but the RBA, in terms of what they target, so it's not even uh, the CPI between two and three percent, but then they manipulate the numbers in terms of weighted, not manipulate, but um, they have other constructs of inflation in terms of weighted median inflation and trimmed mean inflation, or central banks around the globe will say focus on core inflation. So exclude food and energy prices because they're highly volatile components. But we're paying, the, you know, yeah. we're paying, we've got to pay for food and we've got to pay for petrol. Yeah. So again, you know, this is something to be highly conscious of. And obviously at the moment, inflation is very high in Australia. It's high around the globe. You know, the UK is 10%, US 6%, Australia almost 8%. Um, and that's why central banks are doing their best to get the inflation genie back in the bottle. Um, I think they're having some success with that. But ultimately, you know, investors have to take control of their own financial, their own financial future. Um, and in this sense, equities have been a, a fantastic place over a long period of time. So essentially, there's an old cliche in investing. That there's a free lunch, which is diversification. You know, one thing that we emphasize at Firetrail as well is, you know, there's another free lunch, which is extending your time horizon. And if you extend your time horizon to seven years and beyond, whether it's Aussie equities or global equities, uh, historically speaking, there's been 100% likelihood or 100% experience that investors have had a positive total return. If they invest today and hold on for seven years, whether that was the day before the GFC or the day before COVID, and they redeem their money seven years later, they've had a positive total return experience when you think about capital plus the income from that equity exposure. So I'm going to have a different takeaway from this conversation, and it's going to be that cash is maybe king if your time horizon's tomorrow. Of course. In the yeah. short term. Yeah. But the longer you invest, the less risky it is to invest in those types of assets. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Owen. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm thinking about um, a deposit for a house, I don't want to be taking a lot of risk in the equity market because I might want to deploy that cash within the next month, within the next 12 months. Uh, if you want to invest in the equity market and have that accumulation, um, you really need to be looking for us at Firetrail five years, a five-year investment time horizon. And it's even better the longer you can invest, which is why superannuation has been a phenomenon, particularly for, you know, I started work when I was 14, nine months uh, at the checkout at Target. And just to have the power of compounding on your side is extremely powerful. Um, but you're absolutely right. If you're taking risk, you need to extend your time horizon. 
cash, you can call on it overnight. So we're going to talk about a whole heap of different things, including investment process in just a moment. But maybe before we do that, to set the scene, obviously you're with Firetrail, head of investment strategy. You work on the S3 uh, global is global fund S three global opportunities fund S three global yep. opportunities fund which has is an active ETF so you can buy this ETF via your brokerage account if you are listening to this which is great because it improves access as we're just talking yes S three G O S three S three go yes I like that yeah. so can you maybe talk to us because a big conversation that we have on this show is that we see the rise of passive vehicles. Uh, and even thematic vehicles that are listed, right? So people are investing in these low-cost diversified funds. But something that we try and stress on the show is they're not right for everyone in every situation. So I'm curious how you think about the current state of active v passive and, and where you think active has that role to play. So I have my views, you know. I'm yeah. curious where, you're, where you think that fits in. And how you yeah. think about it? Um, I think the debate, it's not active versus passive. I think they can be extremely complementary to one another. And, uh, you know, one one example that I've seen deployed very well by advisors uh, and even superannuation funds is, you know, having a, a passive exposure as a core exposure and then having satellite, what they describe as satellite exposures of, say, active managers that can potentially take a bit more risk um, with the potential to drive higher returns from those exposures. Now, for me, passive, as you say, um, and everyone is different in terms of their risk tolerances and investment goals and savings goals and investment time horizons, but passive uh, is its never passive. It's always an active choice because if I get paid by my employer and I have some excess savings, well, how do I deploy it? I am making an active choice to not put it in a bank account. I'm making an active choice to invest in a bond ETF or an equity ETF or a battery technology ETF or whatever the thematic might be. So first and foremost, there is always an active decision to take an an asset allocation call out of cash and into um, a particular asset class. Now, in terms of passive and the rise of passive, um, obviously that the advantages of passive investment is predominantly fees and But there are a lot of things that you give up when you invest passively as well. Firstly, as we know, you buy the good and the bad. But, you know, and also people will highlight, well, the typical active, the average active fund manager has underperformed a a passive vehicle or passive investment to asset classes over time. And that's absolutely right. But there are a a quartile um, typically of active managers that do have the ability to outperform passive investing. And one thing I like to consider with the rise of passive investing is what if the whole world was passive? Um, what if everyone invested in a passive capacity? Well, what that would mean is yeah, in terms of company management, I'm the CEO of a company. No longer do I have to interact with my shareholders. Um, I know that my um, share price will be bid up um, as flows come into the equity market. I no longer have to be accountable to shareholders. I no longer have to particularly engage with shareholders. Uh, I can then start doing things that could be potentially detrimental to shareholders. I no longer have to consider potentially ESG anymore. I no longer have to consider shareholder-friendly actions. If I want to do some silly things with my balance sheet, I can do it. 
Um, so active investment managers play a very good role in terms of policing company management and engaging with company management. Um, and that's something that we're particularly seeing on the sustainability side as well. Um, because sustainable businesses earn premiums in the marketplace, if you have the capacity to engage with companies and encourage them to improve their ESG credentials, well, academic studies have shown that typically they outperform the market. So I think, you know, the passive versus active, it's not versus, it's very complementary. Um, and absolutely, when you're looking at an active fund manager, I think you have to be as diligent with the exposure to the active fund manager as you would be in selecting an individual company because everyone has a different philosophy. Everyone has a different process. And again, you know, I've seen cash funds that aim to outperform the cash rate that have performance fees on them. You know, that's outrageous. Um, I've seen a fund that has a high yield and billions of AUM charging uh, 180 basis points per annum. And so I can see why active investment managers can come under heat because of these types of examples. And for me, investors, particularly as we have an active ETF, direct investors, you know, they need to do, they need to do an assessment. They need to look at active managers the same way they would do a stock. Even if you're thinking about buying a house, think about the amount of research you do buying a house. This is similar for active investment managers because even though they're all in this, let's say you have a, a sleeve, you want to get exposure to global companies um, because they're less familiar. There's a obviously wider opportunity set than we have here in Australia in terms of what companies are doing, what sectors are doing, what currencies are available. Um, and you look at the global equity space and, and the fund managers that are in that space, there's different performance fees, there's different fees, there's different processes, they have different resources. Some are focused on sustainability, some aren't. So you need to understand, you know, which which is the, the appropriate vehicle and the appropriate investment team that will uh, enable you to meet your long-term investment and savings goals from that asset class. But um, for me, you know, I think it's important to be a, a lot more selective. I mean, I, I own passive in my super, I own active in my super, but it's important to be selective because, you know, I, I don't want to own tobacco companies um, and I don't want to own weapons manufacturers and, you know, I don't want to, Oh, you've got the young kids. You know, I don't want to own stuff that is detrimental, but equally, I don't want to give up investment performance either. Um, so that, that's why I think, you know, the fund that we have at Firetrail, you know, really pragmatic style of global equity investing, incorporating what we describe as a sustainability edge. You know, that's why I think it's so, uh, so attractive for me. Uh, that's why I joined Firetrail, high conviction, concentrated investing, you know, backing the work that we do as equity analysts, um, but not owning you know, that tale of stuff that I think um, is harmful to, to the world. So one of the problems that people have if they are direct is they don't know how to think about analyzing a active manager and making sure that there's a limited overlap with what they already own in their portfolio. Like there are tools available like this Morningstar X-Ray, there's all the, you know, Bloomberg and stuff, but a lot of people don't have access to that. Yeah. In recent presentation you did, you talked about active share, which is something that we've only touched on briefly on this show, this idea of active share. So maybe you can define that for us, but also how that shakes out in the S3 Go portfolio. I think you had a, in a pinnacle presentation you did, which I'll link to in the show notes, you had this really neat table where you compared things like VGS, which is the Vanguard ETF, All World, a qual ETF from Vanek, and you had like one holding that was common, which is Microsoft. 
um, which is, I think, a really good illustration of active share. But maybe you can kind of talk about that. And I think personally, uh, as someone that allocates money, what I'm looking for in an active manager is someone who does something different to what I could get in passive, right? Because that's yeah. kind of the essence, right? Yeah, exactly. And it should also be, I should also mention that the fees for S3 Go uh, if we were to see this maybe this type of thing maybe 10 or 15 years ago, because you mentioned fees, that would be a lot higher back then. So the fees for many high-quality active managers have also come down in the background. So we're seeing much more, I guess, competitiveness there in the industry, which is great for consumers as well. So yeah. I've asked too many questions in one, but basically active share and how you think about that. Yeah. So in terms of active share, it's a statistic to, manage, to uh, look at a fund manager in terms of their overlap with the index or the benchmark that they're trying to outperform. So when I say that S3 Go has a 95% active share, 95% of exposure in the fund is non-benchmark. So we only have a 5% overlap, which in our fund is Microsoft. Um, so 95% of the exposure within S3 Go is an off-benchmark exposure. So our, our benchmark is MSCI World. Now, in terms of active share, it is a representation of how, can, how um, high conviction your, your asset manager is. So the lower the active share, let's say you have 50% active share, the lower conviction. So typically what you'll find is a, a, comp- a, a fund manager that has 50 or lower active share. This is what we're getting close to that sort of closet benchmarking, closet indexing. So, so why don't you just buy an index rather than pay higher fees for that active investment management? So in terms of, you know, if you are going active, you want to have a higher active share in terms of otherwise it, as why not just own passive, but also another metric that often you'll find with fundies or fund manager assessments is their tracking error, which is the volatility of their performance versus the benchmark as well. So 2% tracking error, you know, they typically outperform or underperform. So as I said, you know, I've been, I've been in the industry for, for 20 years now, and I think um, having a high level of active share, being highly concentrated, having high conviction, this is everything that an active investment management firm um, and a process should be. But as you say, what you'll find in Australia for an individual that is looking at active ETFs or passives, the full list of holdings of those funds are supplied on the ASX or on the company websites. So that's how I could look at how active fund managers. So typically this has been a closely guarded yeah, secret. No one shows right? that. Yeah. You're not allowed. But with the innovation, fantastic innovation of active ETFs, which democratizes access to investment managers like Firetrail and others and the investment expertise that they have, well, as part of that, we provide our full holdings with a lag. So you can go on the ASX today and you'll see our full holdings as of the 31st of December and the weights of the exposures within the portfolio as well. Now, a great shame for many Australians today with the fee reductions that you've seen from new entrants into the market like Firetrail is that there's a lot of legacy assets in underperforming global equity funds that are charging fees more reflective of the environment 10, 15, 20 years ago when these big funds raised assets. So I'm talking about 1.35% plus a performance fee or maybe 1.1% plus a performance fee. Um, you know, we're charging 0.72% 
plus a performance fee. So if we, we're, we're um, heavily aligned with our investors, we're, not only are we uh, shareholders within our firm, we all invest in the funds personally in a personal capacity. And then, of course, if we do a good job for our investors, then we earn a performance fee. But if we don't, there's no performance fee and there's a high watermark as well. So until we get back above that high watermark of the fund's performance, we won't earn a performance fee either. So with that in mind, again, you know, some of the metrics that uh, Australian investors can look at is their active share number. Is it high or is it low? Are they, do they have a high overlap with the benchmark, the index, or don't they? Look at the tracking error. Um, is it high volatility? Is it low volatility? Is that appropriate or not? And of course, um, many Australians, they obviously, you know, with the rise of passive investing, they're obviously concerned about fees um, and rightly so. So have a look at the fees and the incentive structures for the investment managers as well. Yeah, great. I love that. Thank you for taking us through that. So just a quick one. You mentioned you've got you know, many years of experience. How did you come to be involved in investing? So, yeah, so I started my career in 2002. So as I mentioned, started off always doing sort of part-time work and things like that. My earliest memories of finance were, I'm not sure if you remember this, like the Dolomite accounts. Oh, yeah, yeah, Kindy and you won. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. 50 cents going in the envelope. Um, I remember doing a school excursion down to ComBank and going into the safe and and uh, <laughs> I'd love to tell you, I thought, oh, that was when I want to be an economist or something, but it wasn't, you know, I couldn't think of anything worse. As a year one, year two, you know, I was more, obviously more focused on bull rush um, <laughs> than uh, getting into finance. But uh, eventually what sparked my interest was year 11, year 12, doing economics um, and did three in economics. And I had a fantastic teacher at school mm. um, that really brought it all to life. Um, and then at university, I studied uh, commerce with a major in economics and did about a year. And, and you know what university is like. It's, you might be full-time, but you're basically part-time. And, you know, I was working in uh, an RSL or, or a leagues club behind the bar and thought, oh, you know, this is a lot of downtime. Why don't I just get cracking? And so I applied for a job at Macquarie. Um, and essentially what I was doing was taking faxes. Um, so it was still faxes. This was in 2002. Taking faxes of um, institutional investors in terms of their redemptions or applications into funds, running them from level 11 up to level 27 um, of Bond Street in Sydney of the Macquarie office block, and then giving them to someone to, to put into a system, you know, this client is redeeming or this client is applying. And I did that. There would be like uh, five runs a day um, from 11 to, to 27. Did that for a couple of years whilst I was finishing uni. And then um, a graduate economist role came up in the economics team. And obviously I knew everyone uh, in the team and actually the, the, um, the business I was working in, that's where I got to know my, my managing director today, Patrick Hodgins, who founded Firetrail. So there's a lesson there, never, never annoy anyone because <laughs> they might give you a job, you know, in 15 <laughs> or 16 years. So then I, I got the economist role when I graduated uni. I did that for three or four years before I left to, to travel the world. So Macquarie would give you one year sabbatical and I ended up in Dublin and uh, I told Macquarie, oh, I'm not coming back. So I ended up um, in Dublin for the GFC. So I started, oh, wow. uh, yeah, you know, we were worried about cash coming out of ATM machines and, um, you know, the property market collapsed 40%. Uh, unemployment went from uh, maybe 5 to 15%. 
kind of overnight. So I got kind of the tail of the Celtic Tiger and I was working um, as an investment specialist on a, a global bond and currency desk, one of the largest in Europe for a firm called Pioneer Investments that um, got acquired by Amundi. And then uh, my my girlfriend, uh, who's now my wife, uh, happy story there, she couldn't get any work as a as an Aussie tourist in Ireland, you know, when the Irish are getting laid off in droves. But she had a role in, in London she could go to that she had previously been working at. Um, and I thought, oh, there's a better chance of me getting a job in the city of London than um, my wife getting a job in Dublin. So I ended up at a UK, the UK's largest fixed income bond and currency uh, firm called M&G Investments. And I was there for almost 10 years. And so in that role, I saw obviously that we came out of the GFC. I saw the Euro debt crisis. I saw um, you know the election of Donald Trump. I saw Brexit. In that role, I went to 22 different countries talking about fixed income. So it was a, a fantastic experience, obviously. For me, before I came back in 2018 and landed a job at uh, Fidelity, where I was at Fidelity for three years before joining Firetrail, a year ago this week. Oh, nice. So, yeah, I went with a backpack and I came back with a wife and three kids. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I had an Irish uh, – my parents are Irish, had an Irish passport and became British as well. Um, so, yeah, it was a great experience, something I couldn't um, emphasise enough for anyone that has the opportunity to work and travel overseas because, uh, yeah, I was going for a year, um, you know, intended on coming back to Macquarie. But, uh, yeah, that my career just, um, you know, took a different path and it was a great experience at the time, um, particularly given, you know, how, how many, the ups and downs of financial markets and, yeah. and obviously the, the global environment in that time as well. Live to tell the tale and being <laughs> uh, in fixed income in London is the Mecca. So yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's a, it's another world. So when I came back to Australia, you know, there, there wasn't a, a deep dearth of fixed income roles available. So at, at Fidelity, I focused on multi-asset in particular Asian and emerging market equities. So I did that for three years before um, I caught up with Patrick, the MD of Firetrail, and he said there's this new fund, the, the Global Opportunities Fund, the S3 Global Opportunities Fund, and to come in and meet the team, hear about it. I went through the full process of maybe, I don't know, 12 interviews, psychometric testing. Um, another element of the investment process, of the hiring process at Firetrail is actually a, a mock investment committee. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, cool. so, so what would happen there? Well, Patrick and the portfolio manager, my colleagues, James Miller and Justin Gray, gave me on a Friday evening, um, sent me an email saying, we want you to come in Monday morning and present your views on Euro dollar. Um, we, also want you, yeah, for, for, uh, we also want you to pitch two stocks to us that you think would fit into the S3 Go investment philosophy and process into the portfolio today. So I spent the whole weekend, you know, um, preparing a presentation on Euro dollar on, I think the company was, it might've been Next Era Energy and potential. The other one was St. Gaban, specializes in renovations and yeah, huge French company. And so I came in Monday morning, I, I was in office works. I had, um, you know, presenting, printing off the packs and all the rest of it and came in and Essentially, there was six portfolio managers in the room as I went through a presentation for them, um, pitching, you know, my views on Euro dollar, um, which fortunately turned out to be right. You know, I was talking about interest rate differentials and the Fed hiking interest rates aggressively. Um, so that was November 21. 
And then the stock stuff probably left a lot to be desired. But fortunately, <laughs> I got the role. So I've spoken to, to Patrick since, and it's basically, you know, he's testing, you know, how passionate you are about markets, um, how committed you are. You know, we're all in five days a week, for example. You know, we work very hard, but we're also, you know, very passionate. So, um, you know, every weekend there's text flying around. And I think, you know, if you find something you enjoy and you're passionate about, um, it doesn't feel like hard work. And that's the sort of culture that that Firetrail has, that, you know, everyone is there. Everyone's genuinely passionate. Um, we don't think that for us, for our firm, you know, working from home, is um, the right way to to build that conviction that we must get um, for companies, but also the the transferring of, of skills from more experienced people to to more junior people as well. So, I mean, one interesting thing, you know, just to give you a little anecdote, is um, you can't eat your lunch at your desk. Um, so uh-huh. we have a, a communal desk, and that's when you get a lot of you know really rich. Not just investing chat, but also, you know, personal chat as well. So, you know, we run the City to Surf every year. We have a run club, um, that type of thing. But even a little thing like that, just getting everyone together and, you know, how's your day being, um, it's it's really great. And, uh, you know, you don't have to feel the need to um, schedule in a Microsoft Teams meeting in order to to talk to, you know, senior members of Firetrail or junior members of Firetrail. Um, So, uh, yeah, it is um, a culture that sort of is bred out of that experience we had at Macquarie, but equally, you know, it's common sense too, you know, if I have to pick the kids up from school or anything like that, or do you Mm. have to work from home? You know, we're very happy to do that too. I've got two questions in the back of that. As a global investor, do you think, do you think it's a requirement to have people in say Europe or North America? No, I don't. So, I mean, the reason is having been based in London, I would get out to see a company as frequently as we do at Fitra. Um, so we have very good access to IR teams, but also company management, whether that's the CEO or COO. I think we've met either the CEO or CFO, sorry, um, of every firm except Microsoft um, in terms of the, our portfolio holdings. And with Microsoft, we meet um, their investor relations team on a quarterly basis um, as mm. well. So if you're in New York, if you're in Manhattan, you know, are you really getting out to the Texas oil fields more often than we are here in Sydney? I think it's probably equal. So uh, particularly for a um, publicly listed exchange traded asset class like global equities, I can see how fixed income, there's definitely advantages because it's all over the counter and it's not exchange traded. But um, we have uh, basically 24-7 trading, so that's not an issue. We're all traveling again. We have an analyst over on the West Coast of the US at the moment meeting um, portfolio holdings for S3GO, but also competitors for Australian companies that are internationally domiciled. Um, We have an analyst heading up to Norway next week um, in terms of seeing the EV adoption um, and what that impact has been on the consumption of oil. He'll also be in Europe and the UK. So, there's also a little bit of a, we think, a little bit of an advantage in in not being embedded in um, a particular jurisdiction as well. I mean, you can imagine the impact that last year's emergency budget measures in the UK had on UK domiciled investors as the gilt market was collapsing, the equity market was collapsing. Um, it's sometimes beneficial to view those types of events from afar 
and keep your head when everyone else is losing theirs. Um, also, you know, think about the recent experience around mm. SVB and Credit Suisse, for example, not being hit by the headlines um, on a particularly regular basis, obviously watching very, very closely. But, uh, you know, the, it is, uh, you know, investing is a, a behaviourally emotional um, thing and it, we think um, being based in Sydney actually gives us a, a bit of a competitive advantage to potentially be see things a little bit clearer than those that are, are actually domiciled there. But we're, we're very, very comfortable with how frequently we get out and kick the tyres of the companies that we invest in and beyond and, and meeting competitors as well. We have a significant budget in order to do that. And um, the other thing is, you know, there's no... There's no holidays on the back of these research trips. So you go to London, you're not tacking on another week or two for your own personal holiday. Right. You're coming straight back to share those insights with While the team and beyond. Exactly, exactly. And you're not just sending an email about, oh, I saw this or that. You're coming back and you're presenting a two-hour presentation to the, the investment team about um, what was interesting and what potential opportunities there are or, or what are the risks as well. Uh, my other question on the back of what you said before was, do you think that you got your research task, the one that you had to do over a weekend, do you think they did that on purpose, giving it to you on a Friday afternoon? Yeah. Because they wanted to push you over the weekend. Yeah. And so, you know, they want to see how you react. Yeah. They want to, see, I'm probably giving away the, the <laughs> secrets, yourself. but uh, yeah, they want to see, are you committed enough? So they purposely, they'll purposely give you a, uh, heavy research agenda to see, you know, is it, are you going to go above and beyond um, in your role in trying to deliver performance for our investors, for our clients? As ultimately, that is why any investment firm exists. And um, sometimes, you know, to the detriment of the, the listed um, fund managers, they have two masters, essentially, the shareholder and the client. Well, inevitably, the shareholder will always win. But, you know, some of the benefits of being a private entity is that you don't have that um, shareholder on a quarterly basis that's so focused on, you know, the earnings and returns of your firm. You can think a bit more long term, you know, not only in investing, but also in the management of your company as well. So, yeah, they they absolutely, yeah, that's why they, Friday afternoon, you think, you, you know, you're going to a wedding or are you going to the, are you going to a vineyard, you know, with your partner or are you going to, you know, are you going to pull out the stops? Yeah. Are you going to pull out the stops? And, um, you know, inevitably, um, what I've also found is that maybe only one out of 10 or one out of 20 people get through that investment committee. Um, so it's, yeah, it's highly selective. It's not a, a box ticking exercise by any stretch of the imagination. And a lot of people that have come through, they've scored well on psychometric testing. You know, they're great individuals, um, but they just um, fall over at that final hurdle um, in terms of you know, the standard that we have for, for people that join Fire Okay. I would like to maybe shift now from the process of hiring to the process of investing and how you go about that. And, and hopefully you can step us through universe to portfolio yeah. in that process that you go through. I've heard, you've said it a few times that the a, an average research assignment for an analyst is 200 hours of like work that goes in. So that sounds like a lot, um, but I imagine there's even screening or filtering or some type of framework before you even get to that point. Yeah. I, I mean, we have a huge universe. It's any company that's listed on exchange anywhere in the world. So whilst our benchmark is MSCI World, so that's a developed market benchmark, um, we can also invest in emerging market companies as well. So overall, we estimate our investment universe is around 20,000 companies. Um, so it is huge. Uh, and there are a number of ways that we get ideas for the portfolio. 
One is implementing screens, which um, you've correctly identified, but rather than negative screen, we positive screen for companies. Um, so Justin Gray, um, in addition to um, James Miller and Patrick Hodgins, have developed screens. So Justin, one of the portfolio managers, an actuary, um, he's worked, the team have worked together for 17 years, but he was the ex-co-head um, of Quant at Macquarie um, before um, he's a founding member of Firetrail. So Firetrail is five years old. The entire team essentially lifted out of Macquarie um, investment management five years ago, um, nine individuals. There's 24 of us now today. Um, but Justin developed um, in a, with, with James and with Patrick, developed screens uh, that incorporate 350 financial metrics in order yeah, in order to um, 350 financial and ESG metrics in order to identify what we describe as 800 positive change opportunities. Um, so they're both you know standard variables like PE and PE rel, uh, but also proprietary metrics um, that we've developed. Um, so that's one way that we get into the 800 positive change opportunities. But ideas can come from anywhere. You know, they can be. Um, you know, I've been presenting on a roadshow with competitors and and seen what I thought was good ideas and proposed those. Um, the analysts might come across a great company in actually, you know, doing research on a particular company, looking at a competitor, and actually seeing that that competitor is a better company. You can also get ideas from the sell side. Um, so they can basically come from anywhere. And so we have this. Um, 800 opportunities, 800 ideas, and we sit down every two weeks as a team of nine individuals and we sit around our conference um, room table and we propose one or two companies for the research agenda and then the three portfolio managers um, as a team will will determine which ones we like the best um, and the three portfolio managers will set the research agenda. And typically if your idea is picked as one, uh, normally only one or two out of say the 18 to 20 companies that are proposed will hit the research agenda and then the PMs will direct um, the analyst team as to which one they should focus on. And typically if you propose an idea, then you will um, be the analyst to do the deep dive research on that. Now, when you're doing the deep dive research, you always have a buddy as well. So you're not doing it in isolation. And the deep dive research includes, of course, all the financial modelling we do all of that um, depending upon the company, what type of model we use will differ, whether it's um, discount cash flow analysis, um, but also for growth companies, you know, using PE rels and, and um, the, the um, uh, competitor comparisons, of course, are, are important in that sense as well. But the deep dive research, we'll try and focus on the one or two or three things that truly matter. What we describe as what matters for a company. So we meet with company management, we, we, we meet with competitors, we talk to suppliers, we talk to compass, uh, customers. We also have access to an expert network. So we aren't in isolation. You know, a lot of the things can be extremely technical that companies are doing. So we'll, we will uh, interview ex-employees, we will interview academics, we'll, you know, in terms of some of the technologies that are being spoken about as well. Um, they're independent experts, so they give you a clear read you know, they might have 20, 30 years experience in the industry, working at a competitor, working for the firm that we are, are talking about. You know, they might be an ex-employee and things like that, you know, understanding what the culture's like, understanding the, the structure of the firm and things like that too. Now, after that 200 hours of research is conducted, the findings are then presented at a one or one and a half hour investment committee, which is the entire team, but also relevant 
portfolio managers or analysts from our Australian equity team as well. So if we have my colleague, Annabelle Riggs, if she's presenting on an insurance company, so Chubb Insurance is a holding in the portfolio today, then we'll get Scott Olson, who's a portfolio manager and also an analyst on insurers for Australia. So QBE is a holding in the high conviction fund. Um, He'll come in as well. And essentially, it's like the Coliseum. You've got just some very bright people, highly analytical that are just trying to punch holes in every single <laughs> slide that you present. And so uh, I sometimes feel fortunate that I don't have to do that as an <laughs> investment strategist. I mean, every Monday morning I present to the team on macroeconomic developments um, and it's still um, confronting enough, but I can only imagine what it's like for, for an analyst. And then at the conclusion of that meeting, you know, there's a recommendation made by the analyst, whether it's a buy, continue to watch, or you know, uh, a sell. Obviously, we don't own it at that stage, but um, if it is a buy, and, and of course, in terms of the research that's presented, we also there's also a proportion of the presentation that is dedicated to our investment process and where we see this company fitting in via our S3 characteristics being, does it have a sustainable business model from a financial perspective? Does it deliver sustainable and growing earnings from a financial perspective? And then is it contributing to sustainable positive change from a traditional ESG perspective? So that's, so that's where the, the S3, three S3s. That's the yeah, three yeah. S3s, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. At the end of all of that, the analysts might like it. There's a vote, a blind vote. Um, so to ensure that there's no anchoring to any individual, you know, the more senior members of the team. So essentially you, you write down on a piece of paper, you hide it, you don't show anyone. Maybe it's a two, maybe it's a three. So from zero to four, four being highest conviction um, should be the the most overweight position um, in the fund to zero being an embargo, or sorry, a, a veto. Um, so you don't want, you know, someone saying we shouldn't own this at all. Um, but essentially the, the votes that really matter are the, the PMs. And inevitably what happens is whether it's a vote, get to the voting stage, but typically what happens is there's a lot of questions from the investment committee. So the analyst has to go away and do more work to sort of tie up all those loose ends. And then there'll be a mini investment committee for half an hour where we go through some of the concerns that people had had after that. So let's say all the portfolio managers agree it's a two or a three. It goes into a position sizing algorithm, which was again developed by Justin, Justin Gray. And that will scale back. Three is an overweight position, but it will be scaled back depending upon the currency of the um, company, the, the listing, um, the volatility of the company, the liquidity of the company, but also the carbon emission profile of the company. Because our portfolio has a target of 30% lower carbon emissions than the MSCI World Index, if a company has a high level of carbon emissions, we'll have to scale that back um, depending upon the profile of, of our portfolio as well. So that's how a, a company gets from sort of idea stage a month of work and then into the investment committee and eventually into the portfolio. So we aren't a firm that can do broad-based sector research, cover everything. You know, we, we aren't that type of firm. We get to know these companies forensically, build conviction in them, and then continue to, to monitor them um, once they're in the portfolio. If we've done the work on a company and it doesn't enter into the portfolio, well, the, that, that work's not just dropped. The analysts continue to monitor for potentially an opportunity when valuation becomes more compelling. Because essentially what, we're, what we do, we're not value manager, we're not growth, we're, we're style neutral throughout the course of the cycle. 
We're just picking the best value and growth companies, the best opportunities that we find. We want to ensure that um, the valuation is compelling enough. And essentially, you know, one of our philosophies is that share prices follow earnings. Um, so if the market is too pessimistic on earnings, and we're more bullish, then typically that's a, a pretty good candidate for the portfolio. I feel like there's so much to dig into there. Like we could, <laughs> we could, we'll have to do a round two. So I might just tuck one little follow-up on here, which is how about sell discipline? How does that differ from the buy discipline there? You said they continue to monitor. Yes. Do they go back into a meeting? The sell discipline is, so there's three reasons why we'll sell. Firstly, it meets our valuation target. So typically, um, I would say on average, a company has 20 to 30% relative value upside within the portfolio. So that's um, relative to, to the index. So it meets our valuation target is one reason we'll sell. The other reason we'll sell is if our investment thesis breaks down. And we've had that obviously a couple of a couple of times, uh, well, a few times. Um, so it's typically a low portfolio, low turnover portfolio. But um, we've had companies where thesis broke down, so we'll sell it. We're not holding on. Um, it's just okay. Let's sell it, move on. And the other reason we'll sell is if there's better opportunities elsewhere um, in the market as well. Now, typically, um, it's not a scenario as formal as the the buy process. It's typically an exchange between the analysts and the portfolio management team of three individuals, but we're all we're all included in the discussion and the research that gets sent around in that sense. But we uh, meet on a weekly basis as a team every Tuesday to run through the portfolio, run through positions, run through updates. Um, and that's typically where the views are shared from the analyst or the portfolio manager that potentially uh, a company should be sold within the portfolio. In terms of portfolio construction, obviously you talk a lot about conviction and this whole process, which is one of the most rigorous I've come across, is about building conviction. So about, you mentioned active share before. So, you, you know, this idea that if someone's doing something different, it, it's often interesting, but they can't just be doing something different and be crazy because otherwise it's just not going to work. They have to be different and right, you know? Mm. So like you have to have the conviction and be good at what you're doing. And oftentimes that's reflected in conviction as a industry is reflected in the way the portfolio is put together. So how do you think about that? Like I'm guessing it goes well beyond just the number of securities or like the overweight, underweight you mentioned before, but how do you think about that generally? In terms of building conviction. So yeah, and you, then how it is like shown in the portfolio composition. Yeah, so you build conviction obviously from that um, deep dive fundamental forensic research that we conduct. And then in terms of portfolio construction, we have very tight risk controls around exposures within the funds. As I said, things like that position sizing algorithm. We also think very differently about um, traditional classifications of companies as well. For example, is Amazon a tech firm or is it a retail firm? You know, um, It's classified as a consumer discretionary stock, not a tech stock. And so its competitors, is it Nike and Lululemon or is its competitors Microsoft, you know, with cloud and, and Alphabet? Um, another example in the portfolio today is a company called Darling Ingredients. So essentially what they do is they provide the raw inputs into a product that is a transition fuel called um, renewable diesel. So 100% substitute for traditional petrol diesel. The advantage is that those raw inputs, used cooking oil and animal offcuts from, from meat carcasses, typically find their way into landfill. So these are, are reused for the purpose of producing 
a um, renewable transition fuel, or sorry, a transition fuel that has a 95% less carbon footprint than traditional petrol diesel and between 60 to 90% less greenhouse gas emissions than petrol diesel. So very, very important. But because of those ingredients, uh, Darling is uh, classified as a consumer staples company. So its emissions profile is compared to a Walmart or a, a Woolies or a Coles. And inev- inevitably, the external rating agencies score it poorly because they're comparing Darling to other consumer staples companies when actually the share price has an 85 90% correlation with the oil majors. So that came up on our screens, for example. We were thinking about how to build in exposure to higher energy price complex over the course of the next five years, but we don't own the traditional oil majors because of their very heavy carbon footprint. How can we build in that exposure? And and this is one thing where funds that are run with a sustainability perspective are often too underweight value. They are inevitably filled uh, mega cap growth or quality names, you know, because these companies, they have a low carbon footprint, they're well run and they treat their staff well until they have to sack them. They typically score very well on ESG. They have large market caps. They're expensively valued. And inevitably what you find is that a lot of global ESG funds, they're filled with mega cap growth, textile names, or expensively valued, say, solar farms and wind farms and new technologies, EVs, battery tech, that type of thing. Um, And that's where a lot of criticism comes from for um, ESG style of investing because inevitably if value rips, interest rates rise, growth sell off, it's like, oh, ESG, it's not for me. I'm just going to go you know, invest normally again. Um, it's, it's not working. Um, so we think a lot more pragmatically about our approach to how can we identify companies going through positive change, their emerging leaders in positive change, their future leaders in positive change, identify these companies early on, build that conviction, have a concentrated portfolio, have those very strong risk framework around it to ensure that no um, particular company, to ensure the portfolio is not being driven by macro risk, not being driven by style risk, not being driven by factor risk, but rather ensure that idiosyncratic or stock-specific risk is what's driving returns in our portfolio. So typically of the fund through time, 80% of returns will be driven by idiosyncratic or stock-specific risk. Interesting. So, so what's important for a company rather than an environment of what's the Fed going to do? Our interest rate's going up. If they do, growth's going to underperform. Um, if gro- if interest rates fall, well, growth will do better, um, that type of thing. Well, that was going to be one of my follow-up questions, actually, and you took it out of my mouth, which was like, have you done contribution or attribution analysis across factors, geographies, styles? We do all of, yeah, all of that, yeah, on a daily basis. Um, so we And still the driving factor is? 80%, yeah, is stock-specific risk. What is described as idiosyncratic risk in, yeah. um, in risk models. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. But uh, yeah, so, I mean, you have two types of risk, systematic and unsystematic risk. So systematic risk is those sort of macro-type drivers and you can never fully diversify all of that risk away. So the market will move up, the market will move down. But what's interesting over the course of the last 12 months is that interest stock correlations have risen throughout the market. So what you will normally find is that a CBA and a Qantas are typically less correlated and then maybe even down a mining company or a small tech firm, typically um, to varying degrees they're correlated. But in periods of market stress, 
correlations rapidly move quite high to say 0.6, 0.7. And in that type of environment where the market's moving up and down as one, typically it's more difficult for active investment managers to outperform. In more normal environments, like we think we're going to experience over the course of the next decade, one which isn't driven by beta, which isn't driven by market risk, one which isn't driven by QE, one that isn't driven by ultra low interest rates, we think you have to be a lot more discerning. So again, it comes back to active versus passive, that a lot of companies will find an environment where interest rates are much higher, extremely difficult to operate in. Those companies don't have access to capital via the debt market and they have to issue more equity. It's dilutive for shareholders. So we think the next decade will be defined by winners, significant winners in the marketplace versus the losers, um, particularly those. And we've seen that in the course of the last 12 months, those companies that have cash, those companies that are less leveraged, those companies that are cash generative um, have typically outperformed. If you are a small tech firm that is unprofitable with promises of future growth, you've been absolutely carried out, you know, declined by 50, 60%, for example. Mm. So sorting the wheat from the chaff is particularly important and avoiding those blow-ups from deteriorating your investment returns going forward. So being highly discerning, you know, really plays to those high conviction style of approaches. Do you find that there's a correlation with the quality factor? So typically with our investment process, given the focus on sustainable business models and sustainable earnings in particular, typically lends itself more to quality style companies. That said, you know, we don't own unprofitable tech. We don't, we want to see earnings within the next five years. So we're happy to own firms that might not be generating earnings today, but typically, um, yeah, there's a, a, it lends itself to more quality style of bias within the fund. But again, We want to ensure that there's no particular factor driving returns at any one time. Hence, the emphasis of, you know, we're we're unconstrained. We're investing right throughout the market cap structure. We're investing across quality, defensive, cyclical growth, value, and high carbon intensity sectors like, you know, we have a copper miner in the portfolio, First Quantum, Canadian listed copper miner with assets in Panama and Zambia that's committed to reducing their carbon footprint by 50% within the next four years. Typically, you won't find a, a, a miner, a copper miner within a portfolio, particularly one that's with ESG integration because of the high level of carbon emissions. But for us, that makes absolutely no sense. I mean, copper is an absolutely necessary commodity for the decarbonization ambitions of the world. Um, whether you want to charge an EV, whether you want to store energy, whether you want to start the EV, you know, with a copper ring, for example, within the ignition, it makes absolutely no sense to starve these companies that have higher carbon footprints of capital when they urgently require investment to help decarbonize their, their operations. So that's why it makes no sense, you know, these net zero or low carbon type strategies, you, inevitably you end up with, as I said, expensively valued sort of ESG style companies. We think Investing in the emerging leaders is one way to help monetize the opportunity within this investment, structural investment phenomenon of sustainability investing, which is driven by institutional investors predominantly, the weight of capital there, but also the regulatory tailwind that you have as well um, as the world seeks to at least limit um, or reduce the the emission profile um, to enable us to meet some of those targets that were set out in the Paris Accords, for example. I think you've done a really good job of articulating the importance of investing with opacity. So when there's like, when there's marketplaces or sectors 
but even in the ESG world, is this is like the frontier for a lot of investors, which is like incorporating that into the process because we know capital is going to ebb and flow based on ESG scores, metrics, and so on and so forth. But a lot of the industry is kind of making it up as we go along. So yeah, there's been a rush. I mean, obviously, investment managers have seen this is commercial. And there's been a rush to rely upon external rating agencies, which inevitably see the world as black and white and rules-based. Uh, and in, inherently, it's backward-looking because you're, fi- you're, you're using output, using inputs from reports that were produced in the past. There's a reliance on publicly scraping, uh, web, web scraping and using um, AI. There's a reliance on... They can often, you can find companies have often been penalized for something that might have happened, you know, up to seven or eight years ago. We found reports that hadn't been updated since 2019. And the world of investing isn't black and white. It's not backward looking. You should be forward looking. And what we aim to do is capitalize on those opportunities for companies that are progressing along a positive change path. And when the market wakes up to the opportunity and the, the contribution that these companies are making. That's when you see the PE, the PE re-rate, and that represents meaningful alpha for, for investors. So it is a, a unique investment philosophy, one that we've, you know, that high conviction, high concentrated approach we've employed for 17 years in Australian equities. We now are employing a, a sustainability perspective as well um, in the global fund. The reason for that is our investment universe is sufficiently large. Um, we can't find enough opportunities in the Australian marketplace to invest capital in this way. But academic studies have shown that better run companies from an ESG perspective outperform the market, but also these companies that score well from external rating agencies, they earn premiums in the marketplace as well. And so if anyone wants to learn more about Firetrail, the S3 Go a strategy, or even just hear more from Anthony, you can go into the show notes. There will be a link to the Firetrail website, as well as some of the presentations that you've done recently. I think you've got to come back on for round two sometime soon. But there is one final question that I would like to put to you, which is, what's one thing that you believe about investing, finance, life, whatever, that few people would agree with you on? Good one, Owen. Um, Yeah, yeah. So one thing that few people would agree with me on. I think I've said a bit of a lot of non-consensus um, views in this interview today, you know, whether it be you know my views on passive investing, whether it be my views on sustainable investing, whether it be you know looking at inflation, for example, and, and the impact of you know the the uh, central the banks on yeah. you know looking at you know trim mean and weighted median and things like that. For me, you know, I think there is an overarching emphasis of getting caught up in the day-to-day noise of marketplace of the marketplace. And inevitably, if you find uh, an active investment manager or a fund manager that um, has a strong track record and aligns with your own investment uh, goals, I think, you know, one of the best things you can do is focus on, on the long-term. So, it's important to have liquidity on hand um, that you can exploit the marketplace when it's on sale. And we are finding at the, at the moment this to be a far more fertile environment than the course of the last decade when a lot of the market was expensive and there was a lot of hot money flooding into the market. So one thing I think that investors won't agree with me on at the moment as um, you know, there's concerns around a banking crisis is it's an actually a, a fantastic time to deploy capital into a growth asset like global equities. And you probably are going to hear a lot of people probably being skeptical saying, of course, that's what he would say. And it is. 
Um, but, uh, you know, if I think about, um, you know, where my kids, um, where, where I'll be investing for them, you know, it's definitely in global equities and just think uh, returning into cash, you know, if you are looking to accumulate assets, um, it's very, very difficult thing to do timing the market. And one thing at Firetrail we don't do is we never build up cash on you. We're fully invest- invested throughout the cycle. Um, we think it's one of the most difficult decisions to make. Some people might be able to do it. I don't think they can do it frequently enough. So building up cash is something that we never do. You're always 100% exposure to, to the market when you're in a fire trial fund. And that's probably a bit non-consensus because I know some investors um, will say that, you know, they're building up cash, that now's not a good time to invest when statistically speaking, if you miss the turning points of marketplace, of, of equity markets, they typically bottom out six to nine months for earnings. If you miss those, those turning points at the bottom of the market, they can be often be the, the best returns that you can generate from an exposure in equity markets in particular. Absolutely, they can. Well, great, mate. That's a fitting way to end the show. So thanks for taking some time to join me today. Cheers, Alan. Thanks. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.